Uh, thanks so much. Uh, so much fun earlier this year, uh, I was in Israel uh, with another pastor friend and got a message from a Thai being like, oh, hey, Mark, I've seen your posts on social media and I was just wondering maybe you could send me your itinerary and like, so I can go to some of the places that you went to and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, man, no worries. He's like, oh, we actually arrived this morning. Um, like, great, come over. So uh, we had so much fun uh, hanging out with, uh, with um, Thai and Shah, traveling around the Holy Land together. Uh, it was really, really awesome. So yeah, just so cool. Uh, really good. Hey, um, yesterday uh, I put on about two kilos just yesterday because I went to a friend's uh, birthday party and him and his brother spent three days smoking meat. Like old McDonald had a farm, yeah, we smoked all the animals from his farm. So we had like chicken and like pork and like burgers and brisket and beans and it was, there was salad there. No one ate any salad, but there was salad there. And uh, man, I was like full on food coma. I could hardly walk after my third plate. And I forgot the advice that Ty gave us just a few weeks ago when I had my, my uh, you know, pulled pork soft taco. I didn't double it. I didn't have another one on the plate. And it messed everywhere. And I got like hot sauce on my pants and everything. And I was like, oh, I should have listened in church. So, um, but yeah, so good. But it just reminded me, you know, as I was eating my way through all of this food, I'm like, I know that smoked meat actually gives you cancer. Did you know that? Like smoked meat, bacon, all the things I love to eat are known carcinogens. But that doesn't change how I eat. Did you know that? It hasn't changed my life. Like someone gave me that piece of scientific information, that fact, but it didn't actually change, change my life, right? Because it's not actually information that changes us. Technical information, finding out something new, doesn't actually lead to change at the deepest level. In fact, philosopher Ivan Illich uh, said that neither reformation nor revolution can truly change a culture. In fact, the way you change a culture is you tell a new story. You cast a new narrative. You say, this is how the world is supposed to work. That's why Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is so powerful because he paints a picture, he tells a new story. And that's how you change the world. Not information, not revelation. It's actually telling a new and compelling story. A story so big, so compelling, so powerful that it displaces the old narrative and becomes the dominant narrative for your life. Like this is how you change the world. It's through telling a new and compelling story. And when you look at God's word, what we have is not an encyclopedia, alphabetized facts all in order, like there's heaps of stuff missing I would love to know that's not in God's word. But God's word, rather, the Bible is, is a story of God and his people, isn't it? It's a story of life. Like in the beginning, God breathes life into the dirt man, Adam, and he becomes a living being. And then chapter three, they lose their life. They die spiritually. The animal is sacrificed to cover up their shame. There's the loss of life. They become spiritually dead. And then when Jesus comes, he gives new life, life from the spirit, born again, new creation. And then one day we're going to have eternal life. Like the story of the Bible is a story of life. It's the big story. And it's a story that unfolds in five chapters. Starts in beauty. God makes a good world. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. He's there in the world. It's Genesis creation. Beauty. And then ashes, we torture 
we burn it to the ground, we destroy God's good world, we break everything, we ruin it. Beauty, ashes. Chapter 3 is the middle part of your Bible. It's the story of God's people. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Israel and Judah and the prophets and the kings. Beauty, ashes, people. Chapter 4 is about Jesus. It's the, it's the wholeness chapter. It's the story of God making everything wrong right. It's the return of shalom. It's new life. It's forgiveness. It's salvation. It's being born again into God's family. It's righteousness. It's grace. Beauty, ashes, people, wholeness. And of course, the story ends in perfection. When God remakes the heaven and the earth and all things are perfected in the book of Revelation. And today, what I want to do is I want to take a deep dive in chapter two of our story. I want to look at the story of ashes. And it's really a, a sermon about the darkness, about death, about sin, about what we've done to God's good world and ourselves. And I want to just to plunge deep into the reality of humanity. Because when you think about it, most people in our world today live in chapter two of God's big story. Most people, people without Christ, are living in the chapter of sin and hopelessness, of death and destruction. Longing for a savior, trying to work their way out of their situation. Hopeless, helpless, dead in sin, slaves to sin, addicted to sin, brokenness. So it's important that we understand chapter two of the story because most people we interact with, when we're outside of kind of Christian community, man, they live in chapter two. So we're going to look at Genesis uh, chapter 3, the fall. We're going to look at what Adam and Eve did and how we share in that. And we're going to look at the consequences of that. This is the great unraveling, the destruction. And I've called it ashes because we burn it to the ground. Genesis chapter 3, starting uh, in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit from the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover as coverings for themselves. What did Adam and Eve do? There's this progression, right? It begins with doubt. The serpent comes and says, are you sure? Did God really say? And Adam and Eve, oh man, they start to doubt God. Can God be trusted? Is, have we, have we, do we have the whole story? Is he holding out on us? And they start to doubt God's goodness, God's character, God's word, God's love. Maybe God isn't who we thought he was. It begins in doubt. Falling close behind doubt is mistrust. 
So mistrust is when Adam and Eve start to transfer their trust away from God's word and God's character and God's love. And they start to withdraw their trust like money out of a bank account saying, I'm not sure we should have all of our eggs in God's basket. I'm not sure we can trust God. And they start to transfer their trust away from God. Shift their trust. Doubt becomes mistrust, becomes disobedience. Adam and Eve broke a direct command. Guys, it's only one thing. I just said one thing. You can do anything except for this one thing. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. Say it back to me, Adam. Say it back to me, Eve. Are we all clear? Like they broke a direct command. They violated God's law. They disobeyed. They, they broke a divine decree. The King of kings and Lord of lords, maker of heaven and earth, said, thou shalt not, and thou shalt did. Right? They broke the law. They become lawbreakers, disobedient people. They rebelled against God's good word, became lawbreakers. Then that spirals into rejecting and replacing God. You see this transcript, this, um, this process? Doubt becomes mistrust, becomes disobedience, becomes rejecting and replacing God, making someone or something else God in God's place, removing God from his rightful place as God, as their king, their savior, their, their heavenly father, and transferring their allegiance to someone or something else. This is idolatry. This is a false God, a pseudo God, a replacement God. They reject and replace God. This is what happened in the garden. This was the great temptation of the snake, was to doubt, mistrust, disobey, reject and replace God. And since that time, all of us have been doing that. All of us follow the same progression. We are all swept up in what Adam and Eve did, and we do it too. We're caught up in that. And I've got this metaphor for this part of the story. And I actually got a picture up on, up on the screen here and in a sec. And it's a picture of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Remember this? One of the wonders of the world. Beautiful, majestic, captivating, a holy place. A place that everyone who heard of it knew as a, as a beautiful place. Created beautiful. And then burnt to the ground. I don't know if you remember when this happened, but as the flames were coming out the top and the news was being covered in the news and on social media, everyone who saw it, there was this collective groan, right? This, oh man, that sucks. Something so beautiful burnt to the ground. Something that can never be replaced, destroyed. Like it's still the chapel, this is still the Cathedral of Notre Dame. It hasn't changed what it is. It's just ruined. It's just destroyed. It's just wrecked. It's burnt to the ground in, in ashes. First beauty, then ashes. And this is our story. Man, I love this analogy. We are the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Humankind was made beautiful by God and for God, but we burnt it to the ground. And the consequences of this disobedience, this mistrust, this rejection and replacement of God, the consequences of this is the loss of shalom. You, you know shalom? Shalom is this, this Hebrew word that means, it's often translated peace, but it's so much more than that. It means uh, prosperity. It means wholeness. 
It means everything in its right place. It means things as they should be. It means blessing and favor and everything as it should be. It's delight, it's flourishing, it's shalom, it's everything right with the world. And what happened in the, in the fall is we lost shalom. The shalom of Eden was shattered. It was torched. We burned it to the ground. We lost shalom with God. Our relationship with God is ashes. Our relationship with ourselves is broken. Our relationships with each other are broken. And even the ground is cursed because of us. What I want to do tonight is just explore those four Four devastations, if you like. Those four tragedies uh, we read about in Genesis 3. First of all, our relationship with God is shattered. Uh, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees, of the garden. But the Lord called to the, to the man, where are you? <laughs> God didn't lose Adam and Eve. Like, oh, I had people, it was two of them, there was a male and a female, Adam and Eve. Where did I put them? I'll just retrace my steps and then I'm sure to find them. Like, God didn't lose them. He knew where they were, but he knew that the relationship had been broken because they were hiding. They ran, they hid themselves, they tried to cover up their shame and guilt. And they hid from God, they ran away from God. And God calls out, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, like feels exposed, you know, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Dude, bad move. Don't blame her. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. No one takes responsibility. Relationship with God is broken. And uh, in Matthew Jacoby's book, Deeper Places, he, he talks about, he has this um, metaphor for the broken relationship we have with God and what it means to us and what it does to us. And it's, it's such a powerful picture. And he, he adopts this term from psychology or probably from psychiatry, actually. And it's this term dissociation. So dissociation is when we create, uh, it's a defense mechanism of the human psyche. We, we create a, a distance between us and the trauma. We, we create, we dissociate from it, we step back from it because we can't cope with the horror of the trauma we're experiencing in the world. We dissociate, we switch off, we push it away. And in fact, all of us are doing it right now. Like right now, you are not thinking about all the awful things you know to be true in the world. You're not thinking about a little kid who's starving to death, alone and naked in some God-forsaken part of the world. Like, you just can't think of the horror and trauma and pain in the world. So we know that it's there, but we kind of push it away as a way to get through everyday life. It's a coping mechanism. But there's a severe version of um, 
of dissociation called dissociative identity disorder, or sometimes called multiple personality disorder. And what happens is when, when a person, usually a child, experiences a horrific trauma as a, as a protective mechanism, as a coping mechanism, they, they go deep inside and they create around them a false identity, a new persona as a coping mechanism. So they haven't got to deal with the pain and horror of what they've experienced. They dissociate to cope. And the real person goes deep inside. And then another trauma happens and they build yet another layer of false identities as a protective mechanism for it to protect the true self from the horror and trauma of what they've experienced. So over time, what you see is not the, the, the true self, the real person. What you see is their defense mechanism coping strategies, the personalities they've created to cope with the pain and trauma of this horrific um, incident that's happened in their lives. And this is what we do with God. We have become dissociated from him. That's what Adam and Eve do, isn't it? They run, they hide, they make excuses. They go deep inside and all of us through, you know, this is what sin does to us. It breaks our relationship with God. We feel naked and exposed and traumatized. So we hide. The true self goes and hides deep in a safe place. And we create these false identities, the, the flesh, as a coping mechanism for the pain of life. Adam and Eve hid themselves, not just under fig leaves, but under layers of guilt and shame. They've dissociated from God. And this is the reality that every human must face, that we live in unspeakable pain because of a disfiguring childhood trauma as we were snatched from the arms of our loving Heavenly Father. We have been torn away from our only validating relationship, the God who made us, who breathed life into us, who called us to himself. We're snatched out of his arms. We're torn away. It's horrific trauma that we undergo. We're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. We went looking for the Garden of Eden when we were in the Holy Land. Couldn't find it. It was locked. Couldn't get in, right? We don't belong there anymore. We've torn, we've been torn out of God's presence. All of us have lost the strongest connection, the, the connection we were designed for, to live in God's love and presence, to walk with him in the garden, to be his children without any barrier, without any hiding or lying or shame. And that's been torn away from us. We have all experienced a horrific and disfiguring childhood trauma sin. Not only that, but we did it to ourselves. We sabotaged our only validating relationship. We broke our relationship with God. We are the ones who did it. No one else did it to us. We did it to ourselves. We broke our relationship with God. He didn't do anything. He still comes looking in the, you know, he walks in the garden Adam, Eve, where are you? I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want to ex experience, I want you to experience my love, my presence, my goodness in your life. And they burn it to the ground. They destroy their relationship with God. 
We do it to ourselves. We do it to ourselves. We lose shalom in our relationship with God, but we also lose shalom in our relationship with ourselves. Like we break ourselves in the process. And Matthew Jacoby says this so well. He says, um, our relationship to our adoring divine father and our natural desire to live in his love is so much a part of our being, created by God and for God, that it is impossible for us to sabotage our relationship with God without inflicting trauma on ourselves. When we ruin our relationship with God, we break ourselves in the process to reject God's goodness, his light and life and love means death and darkness and self-hatred. We break ourselves. We are broken people. We are, on the one hand, incredibly self-absorbed and proud, narcissistic people, right? We think we're better than everyone else. We're incredibly self-absorbed. We don't turn off the hide self-view when we're on Zoom because we just love looking at ourselves. We're self-absorbed. But on the other hand, we have a massive self-loathing problem. We hate ourselves. We feel ashamed and disgusted with who we are. In our darkest moments, we're like, oh, this is gross. We love ourselves. We hate ourselves. We're narcissists. We're nihilists. We think we're the best. We think we're the worst. We are broken, broken people. Vanity, self-loathing go hand in hand. You have burned yourself to the ground. Ashes. We see this in verse 16. To the woman, he said, oh, sorry, this goes on to talk about now um, relationship with others. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You tracking with me? We break our relationship with God, with ourselves and with each other. Adam and Eve's relationship is damaged and tarnished from this point forward. And so is every other human relationship. Adam, uh, Eve blames the snake. Adam blames Eve. Everyone blames God. God announces that relationships now will be marked by competitiveness, by the misuse of power, by using and manipulating and abusing each other. That this is the result. We are cursed in our relationships with one another. We've broken our relationships with each other. They are, they are marred and damaged and ruined. We love people. We hate people. We use and abuse each other. In fact, I was um, I came across recently this uh, this young poet, uh, American poet, I think, and and she's talking about these broken relationships and how, on one hand, we we keep going back to dysfunctional and broken, toxic relationships, but on the other hand, we're insecure and vengeful, and uh, it's quite insightful. Her poetry. I'd like to read you a little bit. Her name's uh, Olivia Rodrigo, and the poem's called "Get Him Back." And I love this because it's just a picture of what we do to each other, right? Should I sing it? I won't, I'll read it. I'll read it. I'll read it. Sing it out? No, I'll read it. I met a guy in the summer. I left him in the spring. He argued with me about everything. He had an ego and a temper and a wondering eye. He said he's six foot two. And I'm like, dude, nice try. But he was so much fun and he had such weird friends. He would take us out to parties and the night would never end. Another song, another club, another bar, another dance. And when he said something wrong, he'd just, sorry, when he said something wrong, he'd just fly me to France. 
I miss him some nights when I'm feeling depressed till I remember every time he made a pass at my friend. Do I love him? Do I hate him? I guess it's up and down. If I had to choose, I would say right now, I want him back. And then she goes into this discussion between, I want to, I want to go back to the broken relationship, but I also want to get even with him because he's a jerk. I want him back. I want to make him real jealous. I want to make him feel bad. Oh, I want to get him back. Because then again, I really miss him. And it makes me feel sad. Oh, I want sweet revenge. I want to get him back, back, back. I want to key his car. I want to take him to lunch. I want to break his heart. Then be the one to stitch it up. I want to kiss his face with an uppercut. <laughs> Best lyric. Um, I want to meet his mom just to tell her, your son sucks. Oh, I'll get him back. 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 I know I'm going to get him back. He's not even going to know what hit him. He's going to love me and hate me at the same time. I'm going to get him back. Oh, I don't know. I got him good. I got him real good. That's what we do to each other. We use and abuse each other. Like in Genesis 1, God gives us dominion. He gives us power. He says, you're made in my image. I want you to rule over, the, rule over my good creation. You're my viceroy, my vice president. You're going to rule in my stead. He gives us power. But we use that power to dominate each other. It becomes tyranny and abuse. He, he makes us in his image and fills us with love. But that love gets corrupted into adultery and greed and lust. It gets broken. We use and abuse each other. In our relationships with each other, our communication becomes marked with half-truths and lies and deception and resentment and misleading communication. We are broken in our relationships with each other. Everything we do apart from Christ, is marred and tainted with ashes. Broken loss of shalom in our relationship with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with God's good creation. Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree of which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Creation is cursed because of us. I remember one time I was... Um, I was at a friend's house out in Samson Vale, I was like 19 or 20, and he had like a, like a trike, like a three-wheeler bike, like a quad bike with only three wheels. And it was my turn to ride it, and I'm riding along by the side of his house along this bank, and I'm like, I'm, I'm going at a reasonable speed, not, not like fanging it, but just kind of a safe, sensible speed. I'm even wearing shoes, not thongs, so that's pretty good. And I'm riding along the side of this hill, being safe, right, being responsible, and all of a sudden I hit this patch of wet um, ground, where a pipe has burst. So instead of being nice, solid, like hillside, it's like a muddy, slippery slide, like wet and wild yesterday, right? 
but mud. So all of a sudden, this trike just turns in the mud and goes flying down this hill, and I go right through a barbed wire fence. And it goes like up my arms, I've got scars on my arms, and across my neck, and I get coat hanged by this barbed wire fence. And I'm lying on the ground, and the trike smashes into this lychee tree because it's got an orchard there and this little farm. And my friends come over, and I'm like, I thought I was dead. I thought like my jugular was ripped out, you know, by the barbs. And they say to me, these are my, like some of my best mates, what did you do that for? And I'm like, dude, the ground tried to kill me. I'm just riding along. Next thing I know, the dirt is trying to put me through a barbed wire fence and end my life. The ground is cursed because of us, you know? This is the world that we live in. Work becomes a grind. Things that are supposed to be easy are hard. Things that are supposed to give us joy are a mixed bag. The ground is cursed because of us. Work sucks. Adam named his wife Eve, verse 20, because she had become the mother of all the living. God made garments out of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord said to the man, the Lord said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Not only is our relationship with God broken, with ourselves, with each other, and with creation, now there's death in the world. The first creature to die was whatever animal was killed to clothe Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame. If that's not a picture of the damaging nature of sin, the innocent murdered to clothe the shame and nakedness of others, we've torched everything. It's ruined. Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden because they don't belong there. God's like, you can't stay. You don't belong. You've sinned. You've torched everything. Out, 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 out. All right, I'll come too. Do you know that? God is present outside of the Garden of Eden. God doesn't stay in the garden and say, whatever happened to those people I made? God turns up in chapter 4 of Genesis, outside of the garden. God comes with his people. The relationship's broken, for sure. But he doesn't give up on them. He's with them outside of the garden. In fact, most of your Bible, everything from Genesis 3 to Matthew 1, is a story of God walking with his people during this time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob growing into the nation of Israel. You know, in Egypt, oppressed as slaves, they're led out by Moses through the Red Sea. God in the desert gives them the Ten Commandments, the law, and he says to them, the law is all about, I will be your God and you will be my people. Here's how you and I are going to live together in a family. You will worship me and treat me as holy and treat each other with respect and I will bless you. Like, that's the middle part of the Bible. It's a story of God and his people. He has a plan for them. He longs to relate to them through the law. But the whole time they are dysfunctional and broken and they reject God and replace God and they build idol after idol and they disobey and they reject and replace. And it's just, it's so hard to get through some of those long prophetic books. 
because you think, man, Israel are idiots. They, they, keep, they keep screwing it up. But that's the world we live in, isn't it? Life without Christ is people trying to save themselves. Most people in our world live in chapter 2 of God's big story. They don't live in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve anymore. Most people in our world, if they're not in a relationship with Christ, they haven't yet experienced the wholeness. They live with the crushing reality of sin. They live with the loss of shalom, the brokenness, the destruction. Everything is ruined. And the people chapter of God's big story tells us that we can't save ourselves. Israel was never good enough. They could never do it. They could never do it. You can never save yourself. No matter how good you are, you can't get the ashes off you. You can't make yourself alive again. You're dead in sin. So why are we talking about this? Because the world is dark. Sin is awful. People are broken. The world is messed up. It's so messed up. People like me are reading Olivia Rodrigo lyrics in church, man. It's broken. But the whole way through God's story, there's an echo and a whisper that one day things are going to change. There's an echo and a whisper. It's a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. It's Emmanuel, a miraculous child born in Isaiah 7. It's the stump of David out of the ashes of a failed kingly line comes the true king, the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. The whole way through, there's this promise that salvation will come, that there will be a day when the curse is reversed. When we go from death to life, from darkness to light. And we are talking about this today because Christmas is just around the corner. And Christmas is the story of the light of the world coming in to darkness to save us and rescue us from the tyranny and tragedy of sin. In John 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. Everything else is dead. He's got life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The word overcome is a cool word. It's the word catalambano. And it means to seize or to conquer or to overcome or understand. So it can mean like to understand mentally. Like, I don't get it. Ah, oh, now I get it. I understand it. I've made sense of it. I've taken it hold, taken hold of the idea. Or it can mean to seize like a winger running down the sideline to score a try and the fullback comes across to cover and tackles the winger, brings them to the ground and takes them out of play. That winger got catalambanoed by the fullback, got conquered. And it says here that the darkness tried to overcome, tried to conquer, tried to snuff out, tried to defeat, but couldn't. The light of the world is invincible light. Jesus is inconquerable. 
right? He's powerful. And most people in your world don't live in the light, they live in the darkness. But we have the light of the world. We have the light of the world. We are the ones that say, I know it feels like everything sucks. It does. But let me tell you about Jesus who made you, who has a purpose for you, who loves you, who gave everything to be with you, who poured out his very innocent life in exchange for your broken one. Light of the world. There was a man sent from heaven whose name was John. Just as the, as the worship team come back up. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. And that's our job, isn't it? We come to bear witness to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. We're not the light. I can't save anybody. I can't even save myself. But Jesus is the light of the world. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Do you know, there was a day uh, when Jesus saved the world. And it wasn't done through a military campaign. It was done through his body broken. And we celebrate his body broken. We remember his body broken by, by taking the bread. that was torn apart, ripped to shreds. So the only way to eat this bread roll is to tear it apart or cut it in half. And he saved the world, not just through his broken, broken body, but for, with his very blood poured out. Blood in the Bible is a synonym for life. Whenever you read blood, think life. He poured out his life for us, that we might come out of darkness and into light. I want to give you a moment just before we pray to, to remember that. As Colossians 1.14 says, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us out into the kingdom of his son whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were in death and darkness, now we're in light and life. How? Through his body broken and his blood poured out. If you have a, a little communion cup with you now, if you want to peel off the, the top layer and take the cracker and just spend some time just quietly remembering that you were once dead in your sin. And now because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, you're alive. Take a moment to eat the cracker and to reflect and then we'll share the cup together. Oh, Jesus, you had every right to condemn us. You had every right to snuff us out and destroy us. You had every right to lord it over us, to punish us in our pain and brokenness. But instead, Lord, you did the exact opposite, moved by love. You offered yourself for us to rescue us from darkness and death. Out of the ashes, we would rise and be reborn as children of the living God. Why don't you open up the cup and we drink together.
until he comes, until he comes. God, I thank you that your life was poured out for us, your very life, Lord. That you gave your perfect life in exchange for our broken one. And now, Lord, you invite us to bear witness to the true light that has come into the world. That we don't need to live in death and darkness anymore because there is light and life. And his name is Jesus. Lord, and I pray this Christmas season as we head towards Christmas lights, Lord, and work breakup parties, God, and neighborhood Christmas parties out on front lawns, Lord, and sporting team breakups and end of school concerts, Lord, as we do all of these things in this Christmas period, I pray that you would use us, Lord, to tell the great story of our Savior Jesus and his incredible love for his people. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Want to be stand? We're going to worship together. God bless.